Now, I'm delighted to say that Jill Rutter is back with a senior fellow of the UK in Changing Europe, a woman who I've admired for many a year uh, and who I once appeared on the same platform as, surprisingly enough, at King's College in London. Jill, a very good uh, morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, um, who thought that we would be putting Brexit back on the menu so soon after we've left the European Union? But, uh, but this is the, sort of the official start of the next stage, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think actually everybody who knew that when Boris Johnson said he was getting Brexit done, that that was only stage one that was done. This yes. We'd be talking about Brexit quite a lot, particularly uh, this spring. So, yeah, we're in the sort of opening positions week. Uh, we had the EU's negotiating mandate published on Tuesday, so that was signed off by their foreign ministers. And today we've just had published the UK's version of what it's asking for in a really quite long document that, uh, that I've just got on my desk, just trying to go through, right. uh, which sets out chapter by chapter about what they what they want and all the agreements that they want with the EU. And we'll get into those if we can, sort of one by one, if, if we may, if we've got time for that. But I guess the biggest uh, conversation they're going to have is about the fishing, isn't it? Well, that's the one of the first up uh, up things. I mean, the UK, you know, they're quite a long way apart on fishing because basically the EU wants really to protect the sort of status quo, uh, guarantee that the fishermen that have fished in UK waters to date can have the same sort of access going forward. Yeah. And the UK says, yeah, well, we'll come to a deal on fishing, but it's got to recognise that we've taken back control of our waters. We're now an independent coastal state. And so it won't quite work like that in the future. Um, but, you know, most people would say that uh, for the UK, it's quite a small part of our economy. Uh, it's actually quite a small part of the European economy too, but it is very totemic. And that's one of the things where the EU said early on, uh, we want to deal quickly on this. But actually, one of the things that's really interesting about the way the UK seems to be approaching these talks is it's saying... Actually, you remember all that time when we were waiting on the EU to say, had we made enough progress on the withdrawal agreement to enter in phase two of the talks? Actually, it's going to be us that's going to be judging whether these talks are going to go anywhere. And if we don't think we are, we'll just peel off and go get ready for no deal. Uh, so we're going to be judging by the summer whether we think there's been good progress on this deal. Right. And one of the reasons that fishing is not a massive part of our economy is partly due to the fact that we don't do much of the fishing, I'm assuming. I mean, how did it get to the point where we gave so much of it away in the first place? Well, it's quite interesting, and lots of people have looked at this. And we're actually still one of the big sort of fishing nations yeah. in the EU, though fish landings have gone down a long way. Um, and some interesting things. I think there's uh, there's one bit which is to say, well, actually, we were slightly shafted uh, when we joined. Uh, the other member states yeah. ganged up on us and said, yeah, you have to give away quite a lot of access. But the other thing I think that's happened... And was that, are you talking is, back in the 70s? That's back in the yeah. 70s. And that's obviously one of the sort of origins of this long-standing concern about fishing. But I think the other thing that also happened is that the way the UK, successive UK governments have run the common fisheries policy, I have to say, health warning here, I'm not a big fishing, fishing expert, uh, has allowed... Well, you're already a bigger expert than I am, so <laughs> carry on. <laughs> ...has allowed uh, quite a lot of uh, fisher, fishing uh, boats from other member states to uh, take advantage of our fishermen selling on their quotas. Mm. Uh, 
so that's why you know these are people who have to, supposed to have some sort of loose connection with the UK, but don't don't necessarily have that much connection. And so we've seen sort of some of those. And I think actually it's quite interesting. Uh, I was this last week. This is something I didn't know before, but someone's saying actually it's been largely a phenomenon among English fisher. Uh, fishing fleets that they tend to sell, sell their quota to foreigners, whereas the Scottish fishing fleets uh, actually go in a different direction, where it's sort of concentrated into a few big, uh, big sort of operators in Scotland, but they haven't traded their quotas away in the same way. But so there's, you know, uh, over time we can have a look, but undoubtedly it's taken a bit of a hit. But it is still very small. I think that's the key thing. Even if you, you know, quadruple the size of the fishing industry it's still not very big. And one of the things that really matters on fish is the two things that matter on fish. One of which is who gets to fish where. The other thing though is a lot of the fish caught in UK waters, we don't want to eat. Uh, so there's a lot of fish exports and if that gets hammered with regulatory checks at the border and with tariffs, uh, a lot of that won't be worth exporting into the EU. So those are the sort of areas that they'll be talking about in the fishing agreement. Who gets access to fish where, but also what's the terms of access to the EU market? Yes, exactly, because they do uh, consume more of our fish than than we do, I suppose. They do, yeah. We we don't like our fish very much. So, yeah, there is a sort of other thing which says, actually, uh, do we have to learn to love mackerel and herring uh, in a way that we don't? Uh, as the future of the sort of fishing industries, because that would then align our taste for fish consumption better with what yeah. what's available in UK waters. So as you say, it is a totemic argument more than it is anything else, because I suppose if we were to make a massive deal about reclaiming all of our own waters um, and then somehow using that uh, reclamation to, to make sure that only British ships used the, the, those, those waters to fish in, we probably wouldn't have enough boats to do it. No, and I think that's one of the sort of things. There are sort of other international obligations that say if you can't use uh, all the sort of fish in your waters up to sort of optimal sustainable catch, remember we don't want overfishing, yeah. it's bad for the long run, then you have to make it available to other countries and things like that. There are actually a network of other international agreements that will be subject to even if we're not part of the common fisheries policy. Right. So Although presumably we could, we could make the argument though that, that, well, okay, if you want access as you have had access, mm-hmm. we'll make you pay more for it or something. Well, we, I mean, you slightly feel there has to be some sort of deal that yeah. if both sides wanted to, that actually over time gets more control of our waters that, you know, and allows our fishing fleets to expand. You think there should be some sort of deal that could be done if both sides want a deal. I think that's one of the interesting questions are, uh, you know, at the end of the day, are either the UK or the EU prepared to see the much wider comprehensive free trade agreement, which is what the UK is aiming for in this, are they prepared to see it founder over a failure to reach an agreement on fish? Yes, I thought you were going to say flounder there, which would have been even flounder, better. Flounder, 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 that would have been better. That would have been, yeah, no, but I'm listen. not thinking as quickly as you. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't get over my headline days, that's the thing. But, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're hearing an awful lot of noise and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, lightness uh, coming out of Brussels and out of Whitehall, I suppose, as well. But in the end, this is all going to be down to practicalities and what everybody can agree on, I suppose. And and I think I, I, I take the point that that many that many of those Brexiteers who support Boris Johnson would say that, you know, Michel Barnier can't dictate any longer what it is that we now do. Um, so let's just take that off the table and start from scratch. Yeah, I think if you actually look at what the EU is doing, I mean, there's been lots of talk about how the EU wants to dictate lots of things, but actually... 
you know, when you look at what they've actually put down, you could say, well, if the Prime Minister really is up for committing to high standards, he could possibly agree some sort of weak clauses here. Yeah. Uh, the EU isn't really giving a huge role to the European Court of Justice beyond the role we've already conceded in the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think there's one thing to look at sort of the sort of bluster around all of this. I mean, we saw all that briefing today. The Prime Minister is going to declare the political declaration dead and he's going to, do, you know, say we're not going to observe the Northern Ireland Protocol. But actually, there's not anything really in that in the thing that the UK's put out. Uh, you could say it's their interpretation of what they signed up to in yeah. October. And what it really has done is it's quite interesting because clearly the people in number 10 who are part of David Frost's new Task Force Europe team have been beavering away, reading every free trade agreement the EU's ever done and basically said, well, in Canada you agreed this, we'd like that. With Japan you agreed this, we'll have a bit of that. Mm. With the Koreans you've agreed that, so we think that would work for the UK. So it's some building up from the bottom up. I and mean, the other thing it does is say, whereas the EU wants a sort of big, big all singing, all dancing, comprehensive agreement under one one set of structures. Michel Barnier has this sort of diagram that he shows of a house with all these agreements sitting under a common governance framework. We say, no, we'll have a free trade agreement, and then we'll have an agreement on this, and yes. then we'll have another agreement on this, and another agreement, and another agreement, and another agreement. And we want those all separate agreements so that the EU can't say... UK's actually not observing what it should have, what it committed to in this agreement, and therefore we can stop their planes flying, even though that's completely unrelated. So yes. that's going to be another biggish argument is the structure of the agreement. Um, the EU may point out to us that actually it's in the UK's interest to go for the structure it suggests, because it then means that there are areas where the EU can agree things with us that uh, that don't trigger clauses it has in other agreements which are sort of yeah if you agree something better with someone else we'll have some of that right. and, and this is kind of a new area for the eu at the moment isn't it because for all of the agreements that they're constantly sort of talking about and and for all of the trade deals that they're constantly doing around the world you know they haven't really had to do something as close to home as this before uh, or at least not for a very long time and not with a, with a sort of potential competitor uh, in a way as an economy so i mean they're gonna they're gonna be doing things for the sort of first time rather inexperienced I would imagine well both sides I think are inexperienced and actually it's quite interesting because the big word that is in the UK document is precedent yeah. 28 28 mentions the word precedent in the document the UK just put out uh, but actually the really honest thing is this is a very unprecedented arrangement no one's left the EU before yeah. most trade agreements are from two countries that are quite distant to each other mm -hmm. uh, in terms of regulation who then look and see where where actually do we want to come closer together this isn't about that this is about taking uh, a country that has been part of a system and saying actually what are the new rules we put in place to enable that country to do things differently so it's a totally different sort of agreement and for both sides they'll be sort of you know having to weigh actually from the eu side you know how much risk are they prepared to take on the uk really really undermining the way in which they run the eu from outside are they really serious that you know the uk will trigger some sort of race to the bottom michel barnier yesterday thinking it was saying that actually you know he doesn't think that's that's a, that bigger threat. He would seem to be toning down his language a bit. Mm. Uh, and for the UK, 
the question to the UK is being, if the EU, you know, actually, are we just going to stick out, even if it meant we didn't get a zero tariff, zero quotas agreement, are we going to stick out for the principle that we might really want to diverge downwards, even if we're saying, actually, yeah, we're not going to do that, we don't want to do that, we don't think there's any political appetite for that, and actually we don't think that's likely to happen in the foreseeable future. So I think both sides will have to decide at the end of the day how far are they prepared to compromise their sort of principal starting points to do a deal. Yeah. And that's so, I mean, whether we can get a deal done or not. Right, and what's the sort of time frame on this as well? And I've got a question for you from, uh, from a listener, Kevin, who says, will all the EU, EU trade talks take place in Brussels or will some be held on the UK soil? I mean, what's the uh, actual practical scenario here? Is it going to go, how long is it going for? So uh, it's quite interesting. Um, they need a deal in place by the end of the year because the government has said it's not going to ask for an extension and it repeats that in this document that we have no intention of asking for an extension. So if we're not going to you know, fall over the famous cliff edge, we need something in place by the end of the year. You would say you need time to get agreement and depending on the sort of agreement, you need time for ratification. Um, certainly ratification by the European Parliament. I think they're going to try and keep it away from needing ratification by those pesky subnational and national parliaments mm. that cause problems <laughs> with the Canadian deal. Yeah. But we will see. So you need to do it. The UK says it really wants this finalised by September. Right. But that in June, it is going to assess whether it thinks these talks are going anywhere. Uh, and if it doesn't think they're going anywhere, then we might sort of you know, break them off, walk off, you know, take summer holidays and put all our efforts into preparing for no deal. Yeah. And in fact, actually, one of the things that's quite interesting is that the Boris Johnson sort of deal that he wants in terms of practicalities like customs paperwork and stuff like that uh, actually doesn't look very different from no deal. Uh, so we'll have to be preparing anyway. So right. But going back to, to just before we, we let you go, Jill, going back I to the fish. You, I can give you the answer Kevin's talks as well. So Kevin was very it. relieved to hear that uh, the talks are going to switch between Brussels and London. Okay. So they kick off in Brussels next week, and then I think the next set are in London. Well, unless, of course, coronavirus kicks in and they have to have them all in oh, some Well, then they'll have to do them all by... Hermetically yeah, sealed and boats or something like that. And, and you might say, why can't they just do it all by teleconferencing well, yeah. and stuff like that anyway? But I think people do find it easier if you're actually in a room together and can go out and huddle in the corridor and stuff like yes. that rather than have to do it all. But coronavirus permitting, they're going to, you know going to be good news for Eurostar in both directions. Yes, I bet. Or bad news for the rest of us who are trying to go anywhere. But what about uh, in the, in the if, if there was to be a no-deal scenario, and just to go back finally to the fishing scenario once more, yeah. if in fact there was no deal, what happens to the fishing waters? Because then, uh, presumably, we would say uh, you no longer have access to, the, to our waters, and we'd have another kind of cod war, potentially. Well, we? we might have a bit, of a bit of a cod war. We might sort of just sort of... Put the old gunboats out. Do, I don't think we're going to be getting gun, but there are questions about uh, beefing up our ability to enforce yeah. uh, whatever we do and whether we've got enough boats available to do that. That is a sort of separate part of the part of the planning. I think the government would have to decide about what it was going to do, whether it would actually, you know, you could imagine you might do something like, uh, I don't know, just inventing, auction off a mm. quota that we don't think British fishermen can use and reinvest that in... Uh, in building up the UK fishing fleet so down the line we have more capacity. Yes, well that may well be the, the, the final answer. Jill, delightful to talk to you. Thanks very much okay. indeed. Jill Russell, Senior Research Fellow at the UK in a changing Europe. So